This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have an interview with Dr. Kayla Brown, which is all about the Nodosaur, a.k.a. Borealopelta. Ooh. Yeah. We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Rabakisaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And as always, we would like to thank our Stegosaurus patrons, and specifically this week, we'd like to thank Chris, Nicholas, Kyle and Betsy, Blaze Campbell, Trent Carbajal, and Paralora Lophus. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much to everyone at the Stegosaurus level, and thanks to all of our patrons in general. We really appreciate all that you do and keep sending us messages and updates. And if you'd like to join this growing group of amazing people, check out our page at patreon.com slash I know Dino. Jumping right into the news... There is a new paper published in Cretaceous Research, which is a new sauropod. What? (laughs) I I don't think you're actually surprised, but it's from the (laughs) Soria province in Spain. And the article was written by Rafael Royo Torres and others. And the full name is Soria Titan Golmiensis. And I'm not sure exactly what the Golmiensis comes from. But Soria Titan is obviously from the province it was discovered in. They found a tooth, several vertebrae, a few ribs, parts of the hips, a partial femur, an ulna, radius, and humerus. So that sounds fairly complete, but amongst all the bones in a sauropod, it's not that many. And unfortunately, one of the more important ones is the femur. And since they only found part of that, it's kind of hard to give size estimates. And... As usual, they didn't find a skull at all, which really tells you a lot about the dinosaur, but is pretty rare with sauropods, so that's not too surprising either. Based on its humerus, because they didn't have the femur, they estimated to be about 14 meters or 43 feet long, and they believe it's from the early Cretaceous about 130 to 138 million years ago. Interestingly, since it's a brachiosaurid, which are usually found in North America, The authors say that that gives some support to the hypothesis that there was a connection between North America and Europe during the early Cretaceous, and thus you can get brachiosaurids in both of them. I know they're spelled differently, but I like that they found a sauropod in Soria. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah, it's spelled S-O-R-I-A, unlike, you know, Saurus usually is. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure if you say that Soria, but I think so. The next article has a pretty self-explanatory title, so I'm going to read it. It's called Consumption of Crustaceans by Mega Herbivorous Dinosaurs, Dietary Flexibility and Dinosaur Life History Strategies, which is a really cool title. (laughs) And thanks to Chris for sharing it with us on Twitter. It was published in Nature's Scientific Reports and researched by Karen Chin and others. And really what they're talking about with that title is that some hadrosaurs ate crustaceans. And they found evidence for this in the Kaiparowitz Formation in Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah, in the U.S. And that formation is about 75 million years old, which is the late Cretaceous. And what they found was, quote-unquote, multi-liter coprolites. In other words, huge (laughs) pieces of dinosaur poo that's been fossilized, (laughs) and they found shell in 10 coprolite samples across three time periods in a 13-mile area. So it seemed to be a pretty consistent pattern, at least in the area. 
And because of this, Chin thinks that it was intentional that these hadrosaurs were eating crustaceans. And they also said that the crustaceans were up to 60% of the width of the hadrosaur beak, which would make it kind of weird to do accidentally, because if you think about something that big compared to your mouth, you definitely notice if you accidentally were chewing on it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also interesting because it appears that the hadrosaurs were eating them in rotten wood, and they were likely eating the wood in order to get at these crustaceans. So it wasn't like hadrosaurs are just eating rotten and wood all the time. But if you want to get at these crustaceans, I guess they were in the rotten wood, which was they knew it was rotten because it had already been a little bit decomposed by fungus. So they were also eating some fungus along with wood and crustaceans. It really seems like a terrible thing to chew on and eat. But I guess if you need some calcium... And that's exactly why they think they were eating them, because crustaceans are really high in calcium in their shells, and birds, modern birds that is, increase their calcium intake during the mating season so that they have that extra mineral in their diet for making eggs. So they think that might be the case with these hadrosaurs too, that they would kind of go en masse to this area to eat a bunch of rotting wood with crustaceans in it in order to get the calcium to make some eggs yum yep the authors also pointed out how like usually dinosaurs get simplified into this carnivore and herbivore categories and it's really not that simple we see modern animals that we generally think of as herbivores occasionally eating animals other animals (laughs) in order to supplement their diet, or just because it's an easy meal. So, seems like hadrosaurs weren't just herbivorous. How'd they know they were hadrosaurs? Just based on, I think, the formation and probably details in the coprolite. Okay, because when I was reading it, it seemed unclear. Yeah, I didn't see anything specifically either that made it obvious why they knew it was a hadrosaur. But I think... You can get a lot of information from a coprolite if you know what you're looking at. (laughs) Maybe like, you know, evidence for how the food was chewed or ground up. And also the size of it, I think, is a pretty good indicator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, all the news headlines about it was large herbivorous dinosaurs, which could be misleading. Yeah. That's probably just because the title of the article was mega herbivorous. Mm -hmm. But once you get into the text of it, they never referred to it as anything other than a hadrosaur. So I assume they know what they're talking about. And last in the scientific journal news, there's an article by Christopher Lappin and others about bite force in the horned frog. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, this one. Yeah. The reason we're talking about it is they extrapolate it to extinct giant frogs. And you may have seen clickbaity titles that say ancient giant frog ate dinosaurs, which is basically sort of what they said. So for a quick background on frogs, because I don't know much about frogs, and I assume if you're listening to a dinosaur podcast, you may not also. The authors wrote, quote, of the nearly 6,800 extant frog species, I didn't realize there were so many frog species. Me either. (laughs) Most have weak jaws that play only a minor role in prey capture. South American horned frogs are a notable exception. Aggressive and able to consume vertebrates their own size, these quote-unquote hopping heads use a vice-like grip of their jaws. That sounds so friendly, hopping heads, but then vice-like grip. Yeah. (laughs) They use the vice-like grip of their jaws to restrain and immobilize prey, end quote. And what they did was they studied that horned frog. It's technically called a serratifris, I think is how you say it. And they estimated the bite force of a Beelzebufo, yes, which is an extinct giant frog, based on that living horned frog. And I just have to talk a little bit about Beelzebufo, just because it's pretty interesting. So the name is based on Beelzebub, which is probably obvious, which was a Philistine god and also an Abrahamian demon. We've talked about that with other dinosaur names, too, mm-hmm. where something was, like, worshipped, and then a later religion turned it into a demon. It's kind of an interesting move. But anyway, 
It literally translates to Lord of the Flies, <laughs> which is a perfect name for a giant frog. Yep. I love it. And if you've played the game Ark, that's the giant frog that you ride on is one of these things. But in real life, it was 41 centimeters or 16 inches long and weighed about four and a half kilograms or 10 pounds. That's still a large frog. Yeah, but you're not going to ride it. Well, I mean, what's your you... Thumbelina. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in the game, you can ride it as a full-sized human. <laughs> so Bielzebufo had sharp teeth that curved towards the back of its mouth, only in the top jaw, and that's seen in those modern South American horned frogs as well. I didn't know any frogs had teeth. That's pretty intense. And then obviously they're good at keeping prey in the mouth, being curved back and sharp and all that. So what they ended up doing was they looked at some modern frogs and tested their bite force, and then they came up with a model for how strong the frogs bite based on the size of their skull. Pretty simple, and it seemed to be a pretty good relationship. So based on the 15-centimeter or 6-inch skull width of Beelzebufo, they estimate that it could have achieved bite forces of 500 to 2200 newtons, or 110 to 500 pounds of force, which is, quote, comparable to medium to large-sized mammalian carnivores, end quote. It is a really strong bite force. I think we talked about earlier how humans have a bite force of about 200 pounds on our molars, and this on the upper range goes quite a bit above that for something that only weighs about 10 pounds. So yeah. I think the hopping head analogy is pretty good. This guy lived in the latest Cretaceous in Madagascar, and since modern relatives can eat a full-grown rat and small reptiles, it is reasonable to think that Beelzebufo could have eaten small dinosaurs, most likely juvenile dinosaurs that were, you know, just hatching, or maybe it could break open an egg or something. But it's not like this is some big predator that's going out and hunting down raptors. Monster frog. Yeah. It's, so don't think of it as an apex predator that's going after dinosaurs. It's eating dinosaurs the same way like a rat can eat a chicken because it sneaks into a chicken coop and gets them when they're super young. So not really the normal chain of events. I think a dinosaur is much more likely to eat this frog than the other way around, but it could happen. <laughs> Sorry if that was too much talk about frogs, but since it was all over the news, I feel like we needed to address its dinosaur eating ability. <laughs> yeah, good idea. Next, thanks to Mitchell, who shared this one with us via Facebook. So paleontologist Kenneth Lacavara recently published a book, Why Dinosaurs Matter. And ideas.ted.com published an excerpt from his book, which asks the question, how did the word dinosaur become an epithet to invoke an inability to adapt to changing conditions? Which is a good question. You always talk about something being out of date. You refer to it as a dinosaur or whatever. Some people do. Yeah, it happens a lot. <laughs> but you think about it, dinosaurs lived for millions of years and dominated the globe. And by many metrics, they were very successful. So because of this, Kenneth argues that we should learn from them. Quote, they reigned unchallenged for the better part of 165 million years. And that's only if you exclude birds. If you include birds, now known as avian dinosaurs, their incredible run has yet to pass and spans the last 231 million years. Primates have been around for about 56 million years. Our human lineage split from the line leading to chimpanzees 6 to 7 million years ago, and our own species appeared around only 200,000 years ago, end quote. He also says, quote, this treasure trove of information comes at an auspicious moment. As we move into an uncertain environmental future, it has never been more important to understand the past. Want to design a system to move heavy loads over rough terrain? Dinosaurs did that. <laughs> Want to understand mostly passive and efficient cooling systems? Sauropods were experts. Interested in upcycling and repurposing technology? Look to the dinosaurs. Feathers are a marvelous example of acceptation or the process of acquiring functions for which they were not originally adapted. 
Interested in resilience? Avian dinosaurs survived the worst catastrophe in the last quarter billion years and today outnumber mammalian species by more than three to one. Since Da Vinci and probably long before, humans have been fascinated with self-powered flight, something that we've been unable to substantially achieve. Dinosaurs did this 150 million years ago, end quote. (laughs) So the whole idea is for us to look to the past and help guide us in the future. And there's no perfect analogies, but we can learn a lot. Sounds like a really interesting book. Yeah, I like that he's pointing out how dinosaurs achieved a lot of things that we haven't been able to, rather than just talking about how they failed (laughs) at things. Exactly. Next on September 16th, researchers CT scan pieces of skulls from two teenage triceratops from the Hell Creek Formation, one known as Bruce, which was found in 2010, and the other known as the Lost Creek Trike, which was found in 2016. The project was a collaboration between St. Louis Science Center and the School of Medicine and was done at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. They also scanned a seven-month-old mummified boy from ancient Egypt, and the hope for the Triceratops is to learn how their brains developed over their lives, and then they also want to study ancient Egyptian lives. They're unrelated, but it's the same project. <laughs> so the next step is to produce a 3D endocast of the brain cavity of the Triceratops and compare brain models of different life stages and dinosaur species to see how the brain evolved. In Chicago, Illinois, the Steger South Chicago Heights Public Library has a full-size reproduction of a T-Rex skull guarding the entrance. Visitors can actually touch the skull. So the T-Rex's name is Norm, and he's on loan from the Chicago Field Museum. And Norm is named after Norman Waite Harris, who funded a program in 1912 that allows Chicago public school educators to bring temporary exhibits to students. Norm is officially on display until October 3rd, which is the day before this show airs, but there's a good chance he's being extended for two weeks, so hopefully you get a chance to see him. The American Museum of Natural History in New York is temporarily acting as a stage quote for the world premiere of a 20-minute opera about a girl named Rhoda who visits the museum with her grandfather, renowned paleoartist Charles R. Knight, and embarks on a fossil-finding adventure, end quote. This is according to Live Science. This is a really great article. So the opera was developed by On-Site Opera in partnership with the American Museum of Natural History, and it's based on Rhoda Knight Colt's real-life experiences, the actual granddaughter of Charles Knight. So Charles Knight worked closely with the American Museum of Natural History, and Rhoda often came with him on his weekly trips to the museum, starting when she was seven years old. And the story of the opera is based on Colt's recollections, but it turns out she was a very well-behaved child, so they had to add some things to make the story more interesting. (laughs) And in the opera, Rhoda starts searching for missing fossils in the museum after hearing about a new discovery related to Dinochiris. And the opera incorporates the museum's exhibits and fossil displays, and both the singer and the orchestra are mobile. So I guess as an audience member, you have to be mobile to kind of walk around and follow them. But Mm. the opera will be at the museum until October 15th, and performances are at 11.30 a.m. on Fridays and 12 p.m. and 12.30 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. And performances are free with museum admission. Cool. Mm Mm-hmm. I wish we were there to see it. Yeah. The Natural History Museum in London has a new exclusive dinosaurs version of Monopoly. It costs 30 pounds, and some of the dinosaur changes in the game include renaming Mayfair and Park Lane Tyrannosaurus and Allosaurus, and changing the chance and community chess cards to excavation and laboratory. Hmm. And you can buy this online, so you don't have to go all the way to London to get it. Interesting. We already have Dinopoly. Because I guess they didn't trademark it properly. (laughs) I guess not. But if you're really interested in getting an official Monopoly version, you get that one. Yeah. Speaking of games, Dungeons & Dragons has released their newest adventure, which is Dinosaur Racing. And the campaign is called Tomb of Annihilation, and it's set on the jungle island of Cholt. I think I pronounced that right. So in this campaign, you can race dinosaurs and bet on dinosaur races. And some examples of the dinosaurs include Bibby, a well-trained hadrosaurus, Jungle Princess, a Deinonychus with a frightened jockey, and Bone Cruncher, a young, ill-tempered allosaurus. I apparently don't understand Dungeons & Dragons very well if you can race dinosaurs. Well, it's just this one campaign, so. (laughs) If you play and you play this campaign, let us know how it goes. Digital Trends reported on one of the latest STEM toys called Stemosaur. It's a seven-inch plastic dinosaur that can, quote, 
talk to your kids, tell them jokes and stories, quiz them, and answer some basic questions, end quote. There's eight parts, and the first task is to figure out how to assemble the robot dinosaur. And then you go online to access the coding panel, which teaches kids the basics of programming and lets them customize what their stemosaur says. The toy's recommended for kids ages 7 and up, and there's also this parental learning path so parents can see what their kids have been doing with Stemosaur. Stemosaur is going to go on sale later this year, and it's going to cost $140. It sounds pretty cool. Pretty cool way to get kids interested in these fields. Yeah. It's pretty expensive, though. Maybe it'll get less expensive later. Next, Apple's iOS 11 has more powerful augmented reality apps. In one of them, you can open a gateway to a T-Rex in your living room or whatever room you're in. Just the video I saw was the living room. And another app has a cute cartoony pet dragon jumping around. Mm. Kind of like the HoloLens, except a lot of people have iPhones. Yes. Next, the baseball team, the Arizona Diamondbacks, had a dinosaur throw out the first pitch of their game on September 22nd. It was part of STEM Showcase Night, which is part of the Diamondbacks Science of Baseball program. And so they had STEM projects and displays around the park. And in the video showing the pitch, there's a person in what looks like a full-bodied velociraptor or velociraptor-ish suit with an animatronic head. And a man puts the baseball in the dinosaur's mouth and then the dinosaur pitches it from its jaws. It can't throw it far, but it's pretty entertaining. Yeah, I was going to say, either they're cheating and it's using like compressed air, like a t-shirt cannon to pitch, or it's not going to go well. (laughs) No, it was, yeah, it was not the best throw, but it was an entertaining throw. That's good. (laughs) Speaking of baseball, though, Sports Illustrated ranked 10 dinosaurs by their theoretical ability to play baseball. So I'll go through the list real quick. Number 10 goes to Pachycephalosaurus because it had a domed head and wouldn't have needed a helmet. And I should mention, not all of these reasons make sense, but (laughs) next is Velociraptor, then T-Rex, despite having small arms, then Stegosaurus, then Triceratops, because the frills would have helped it catch somehow, then Spinosaurus, because it's big, then Deinonychus, then Apatosaurus, because it's got this whip-like tail, so that could be good for batting. And then a pterodactyl, which is not a dinosaur, but oh well. And number one goes to Ankylosaurus. So the author John Taylor said, quote, No question as to who's first for me. With its massive bone club tail, this 13,000-pound beast would have been the Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton of its day, end quote. Yeah, I was going to pick apart a lot of those arguments, but since they made Ankylosaurus win, I guess I'll just <laughs> let it don't, go. You don't have it in you. <laughs> <laughs> He made it clear that there were plenty of other dinosaurs to choose from, but after a while, the reasoning all sounds the same, and I didn't get the impression that he knew that many dinosaurs. <laughs> Considering he included pterodactyl, yeah. which isn't even an animal, let alone a dinosaur. <laughs> Next, new scientists shared a way to make a wine decanter out of a toy dinosaur. They call it the winosaur, and they basically use the electronic voice box from a toy dinosaur to trigger when the wine is ready to drink after letting the wine breathe by dripping it from one bottle to another. They didn't share how they did this step by step, but there's more directions in the article, so I'll post a link in case you're interested in trying it out for yourself. That's pretty ridiculous. (laughs) Yep. Next, Thingiverse, a design community that shares 3D models you can print. Garrett's very familiar has a dinosaur's collection. Interestingly, not all of the models are dinosaurs, and actually the first one that appears is a mammoth. So. Oh, thing averse. Yeah, but they have some cool T-Rexes and Stegosauruses and Triceratops. They need to get their metadata straight. <laughs> it's outrageous. It is annoying that the first one is a mammoth. It is a cool-looking mammoth, but yeah. Yeah, they could just call it paleontology. Mm-hmm. People use dinosaurs for way too many... Prehistoric cinnamon. creatures. Yeah. And thanks to Remy and Michelle for sharing about their recent trip to the Denver Museum of Science and Nature. We talked recently about the new Triceratops skull that they have on display and also the T-Rex tooth that was discovered in the quarry. And they saw both of them on their trip. And they also said that there's a video showing the site and the extraction from the site of the Triceratops, which is pretty cool. And then they also have a tribute photo to Mike Getty, who we talked about recently and how he passed away after getting sick during the excavation. So if you're in the area, it sounds like a pretty good spot to check out. Definitely. And Michelle sent us some pictures, which really looked really great. So thank you for sending that to us. 
And last quick shout out to Ari Rudenko's Kickstarter. You may remember Ari from episode 104, Archaeopteryx. When I interviewed him about dancing like a dinosaur. Yes, it's a great interview. If you haven't heard it, you should check it out. So now Ari, who's the artistic director of Prehistoric Body Theater, is working with the Burke Museum in Seattle on a new project, which is putting dinosaur dance on film. And this is based on the collaboration with an ensemble of Indonesian contemporary dancers. And it's based on the feature production Ghosts of Hell Creek, which tells the final days of Akira Raptor. So we will post a link to the Kickstarter in our show notes. You can learn more. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Dr. Kayla Brown, who is a Betsy Nichols postdoctoral fellow at the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And I apologize, we had a couple points where the audio cut out a little bit, so hopefully it doesn't distract too much from the conversation. So we're joined this week by Dr. Kayla Brown, and he is one of the main researchers who has worked on Borealopelta, formerly known as the Notosaur, <laughs> kind of like the Titanosaur at AM&H. So how did you start your involvement with this specimen? Yeah, so my involvement with this specimen was actually quite late. Uh, it was found in 2011, and it had gone through many years of preparation before I actually got involved in the project. Two uh, years ago, and I was brought into the project to help with the anatomical description of the animal. So describing uh, what its morphology is like, how is it different from other specimens, and figuring out what it's related to. So that was kind of the the main things that I brought to this paper. Cool. So what all did you find in that work? Well, the the first thing that is, usually this is the big deal of a new paper, is that we found a, a, we discovered this was a a new species of dinosaur, in fact, a new genus. So we gave it the name Borealopelta Mark Micheli. And that just means Northern Shield. And then Mark Micheli honors the the preparator, the guy who spent so much time getting it ready for research and display. Yeah, that's really cool. Exactly. And normally the fact that you have a new dinosaur to announce is actually the, the exciting part of the, the paper. <laughs> In this case, there's so many actually other more exciting parts. 
it's a new animal. We have details about its coloration, potential details about its its camouflage and, and that it was being preyed upon. And we also have this just fantastically preserved specimen that is uh, just amazing to look at. Yeah, it is really awesome to look at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent a lot of time staring at it and walking around it because you have it in that awesome glass case where it's really close to the ground. So I assume kids and everybody can get up really close too. And you can just examine it from so many different angles and see it almost like you're just in the room right there next to it. Yes. Our museum is very family friendly. Most of our visitors are family. So we wanted to make sure that kids, when they come to see the museum, uh, they could see the notosaur kind of face to face. So everybody can get a good view of this animal. It can go all the way 360 degrees around it. So Yeah. It's super cool. And then you have the replica head sitting outside that you can touch, which I spent a fair amount of time doing, (laughs) (laughs) which is also a really nice addition. Yeah, we had to uh, 3D print the head. We weren't able to make traditional mold and a cast of it because it would it would damage some of the original organics of the material of the of the fossil. So we had to 3D print this skull and then make a mold and a cast of that. But we made that available so people can touch it and they can basically touch what a real dinosaur head, not just a skull, feels like. Yeah, that is so cool. I didn't think of that before with 3D printing. I'm always thinking of advantages to 3D printing. I'm just starting to get into it. But I didn't think of the chemical aspect of it because they talk about you don't want to preserve and use glue on skin and things like that because that messes with it. But I suppose even a resin type thing when you're making a cast could interfere with some of that chemistry. That's really interesting. Exactly. We now know that there's a lot of organics preserved in the the fossils. We want to preserve those. But also did some molds on kind of similar rock material, but not on the fossil, on the pieces that had broken off, basically. Okay. And we found that uh, some of the molding agents would discolor the rock. So we didn't want to a- end up destroying our, our beautiful fossil by trying to make a copy of it. Yeah. Do you know if you used photogrammetry or structured light or what you used to scan it? Yeah, the the scan that we used for the 3D printing was actually produced with the help of National Geographic. Oh. And it was it was a photogrammetry scan, but it wasn't a traditional photogrammetry scan in that it was just using visible light. So we we did one using visible light, but we also did one using infrared and using ultraviolet light as well. And then the ultimate goal is that we'll be able to combine these different light spectra and make a multispectral three-dimensional digital model of this animal. And that's something that's never really been done before. So we're kind of pushing the boundaries of what we can do with this animal. Yeah, I remember seeing when National Geographic posted that, it was that you could kind of scroll around and see the 3D (laughs) model. That was amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we had a really good collaboration with them on this project. So I think we're both very happy about how that turned out. (laughs) Nice. So a lot of your talk at SVP, which was excellent, by the way, was about keratin sheaths and how, you know, you were talking about some of the tissue that was preserved around or organic molecules that were preserved around the notosaur. I should keep saying the notosaur, Borealopelta. <laughs> <laughs> and what you say there were like 186 osteoderms around the body? Is that right? Something like that. I don't know the, the number off the top of my head, but it, it's somewhere in that range. That's crazy. And uh, so... Normally, when we find armored dinosaurs, we do find the osteoderms, but they're often what we call disarticulated or dissociated. So they're there, but they've been jumbled up. It's kind of like pickup sticks. (laughs) With our animal, all of those osteoderms, and I should introduce osteoderms are the bony plates that are embedded in the skin, basically the body armor. All of those for our animal are in the original life position. And not only that, they preserve the bone, but they also preserve the what would have been the living tissue on top, uh, something called keratin. And that's the same material that's on your fingernails or on the horns of, of cattle today. And we almost never find that preserved. And because we have a large number of osteoderms preserved in this animal, in their life position with the keratinous sheaths, we can actually learn a lot about those structures that we didn't know before. Yeah, that was really interesting. I really liked how you put up a graph of kind of the percentage that keratin extends past the bone on various animals, depending on the size. And then you talked about the allometry, I think, or allometry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So allometry just means differential growth. So it's growth of one structure relative to another. And the simplest way to explain that is, is look at a baby and compare a baby to an adult. 
and you'll see that their heads, the head of a baby grows very slowly uh, compared to the legs of a baby. Mm-hmm. So if you put them side by side and you scale them, you'll see the adult's legs are much longer, but the head is much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. And we can use this principle of, of allometry or allometric growth to study how the shape of these osteoderms, these bony plates, changes as they get larger. And what we see is that as the bony portion of the armor gets larger, the keratinous portion, the part that's not normally preserved, that grows even faster. So it grows at a much, much faster rate. So what you end up with is you end up with these uh, flat osteoderms for most of the animal. These are kind of pancake-looking things with a thin coating of keratin. But as these osteoderms are modified into more keeled structures and eventually to horn-like or spine-like structures on the shoulders, uh, the keratinous portion becomes much, much bigger. And eventually it forms about a a full third of the length of the osteoderm is this keratinous portion, uh, which is kind of more than most people would have assumed beforehand. Yeah, that was really cool. And you also showed sort of a you know, rough estimation with ceratopsians and stegosaurs and how generally they're recreated with kind of a conservative amount of keratin on them. And you're saying, well, maybe it might be like twice as much. So stegosaur plates might have been way bigger and ceratopsian horns might have been, you know, basically half keratin, which I thought was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, ultimately, we don't really know. And for the notosaur, even though we have a good sample of that one specimen, it's still just one animal. Mm -hmm. And um, within that one animal, there's a huge range of how much keratin you see on these structures. It goes from around 5% or less up to around 33%. So that's the range that we see in this animal. Hmm. What that means is that we can probably see a similar range in other animals. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I would like to suggest is that when we have these very large horns or spikes or plates, they probably had a very thick keratinous covering that would have exaggerated the overall size or the overall shape of that structure. And that's exactly what we see in the notosaur. So basically, we can extrapolate that to other animals. We still don't know to what extreme, but it kind of helps us figure out that these might be a bit more exaggerated than previously thought. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense, especially since a lot of times on animals, horns and plates are display structures. So why wouldn't you want to make them as big as you could? You know, the bigger, the better, the more display you get going, the more mates you're going to attract and all that. Exactly. Bone is a very expensive and heavy structure to make and carry around. The keratinous coverings is lower cost to the animal. It's also a very tough, resistant material on the outside. Basically, you don't want bones exposed to the environment. That's a very unhealthy situation. Hmm. So you want this, you want some sort of covering of an epidermal covering. And in this case, it's that keratinous sheath. Yeah. So what was unique about Borealopelta to give it its own species or its own genus, I should say? Yeah. So, well, first off, I'll say that when we find a new species of dinosaur, it's generally also put into its own genus. And the reason for that is because we lack what's, what's called phylogenetic resolution. These animals, when we put them in their family tree, they move around a lot. We don't really have a good idea of who they're related to. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we generally don't put them in multiple species within the same genus because uh, the next family tree that's published will have them all in another species. <laughs> so to, to adjust for the variability or the liability in the system, we kind of tend to give them all new genus names when we decide that it's different enough to warrant a new species name. The big distinctions from its relatives are characters of the skull and characters of the armor. Um, so you can look at the the formation of these bony plates it has on the skull, um, the size of the horns and the shape of the horns above the eye and behind the eye, and then also some of the armor on the neck. Those tend to be fairly diagnostic for different species of, of notosaur or different species of armor dinosaur. Cool. Yeah. I think that kind of falls in line with most ankylosaurs. A lot of times it's those horns on the skull and the osteoderms. And that, is that partly too just because that's usually what preserves yeah, there's two factors there. Part of that is a is a bias in preservation. That's what we have to work with. So that's where we find the differences. But there's also a biological component as well. And this works for ankylosaurs, but it also works for things like hadrosaurs or duckbill dinosaurs and ceratopsians or the horned dinosaurs. And, and that's these display structures, these kind of exaggerated bony outgrowths from the head or from the skeleton, 
the more we research them, the more we think that these are display structures in life. So they would have served a role to distinguish between different animals or to impress mates or intimidate rivals. And because of that function, they tend to be very species-specific, meaning each individual species has a very distinct shape or morphology to those structures. So that helps us as paleontologists because we can really hone in on those particular structures and they help us to distinguish which species is different from another species. Yeah, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With the notosaur, it was actually kind of ironic. The animal is preserved with all of its skin in three dimensions and it just, it looks like the animal just fell asleep and turned to stone, but that's actually a good thing and a bad thing. Um, Ironically, it's too well preserved. Uh, Most (laughs) other ankylosaurs are diagnosed Uh, so that their species is defined by features of the skeleton. In this case, we can't see the majority of the skeleton in Borealopelta because Mm -hmm. it's covered in skin. So we're not exactly certain what the skeleton looks like, and we we lack information that we would have if it wasn't as well-preserved as it it is now. That's interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) Can you... I know sometimes they take these specimens to, like, synchrotrons, like super high-power CT scans, but is it too unwieldy and delicate to try to get to one of those machines? Yeah, there's a couple of limitations with that. And we so we did try a traditional CT scanner on the skull. <laughs> and it had worked for other rocks from the same formation. So we had high hopes. But the rock was just too radio opaque and too dense and mm. too large. It just bounced off all the all the x-rays. The limitations for scanning are the dimensions of the animal. So it's it's both large and very heavy. It's difficult to move. It's incredibly fragile. And you can imagine it's a one-off specimen. You wouldn't want to break it or destroy mm-hmm. it somehow. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very careful when removing it. Also, because it's now on public display, we've kind of committed it to being in the public for a couple of years. When it comes off display or when it gets moved around, then maybe we'll take the chance to look at some new technologies and see if we can actually scan and get an idea of what the skeleton looks like. Hmm. Ideally, we want to move the specimen as little as possible, but there aren't that many really high-energy scanners close to us. So it's a balancing act between conserving the specimen and trying to get as much information as possible from the specimen for research. Yeah, I was trying to think. I can't think of any synchrotrons in Alberta is there one in Toronto or something? Where is, are there any? There's one just across the border in Saskatchewan, which is the next province over. Okay. So that's a possibility. But again, that might work for the skull, but for the rest of the body, it's just too big for that. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to look at a more industrial sized thing. And we're still doing research on trying to figure out what's the best way of scanning this animal. Uh, we don't want to transported halfway across the country to find out that the scans didn't work. So we need to make sure that we actually are confident that we'll be able to scan it at these different facilities. Maybe Alberta needs to invest in a good dinosaur scanner. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I would definitely be in support of that. Sounds like you've got a few years. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Start building. The specimen is currently on display and it will be on display for a couple of years. And then I'm go back on display in another part of the gallery at some point as well. But if anybody does want to see it, it's, it's currently yeah, right now in the gallery at the Royal Toronto Museum, and it's a, it's a pretty fantastic specimen to see. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a must-see for sure. Well, I think one of the really exciting things was the fact that we know it had orange bits, like right, this orange camouflage. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So uh, when we discovered, when we realized how well-preserved the specimen was, we were interested in seeing if there was any organic molecules preserved, especially pigments, because in the last 10 years has been of a revolution in terms of coloration in fossils, particularly dinosaurs. And this is largely based on some of the feathered dinosaurs from China. And it relies on the preservation of, of pigment bearing organelles called melanosomes. And based on the shape of those melanosomes, you can figure out whether they were more of a black color or more of a brown color, or more of a red color. So we teamed up with uh, one of our colleagues, Jakob Winther, at the University of Bristol, and he came out to examine the specimen. And unfortunately, were no melanosomes preserved, so that was kind of a bit of a disappointment. Mm. But when we did uh, geochemical testing, and that was with more collaborators at uh, Newcastle University and MIT, we discovered that there was abundant uh, biomolecules preserved in the skin, 
And one of these most common biomolecules was something called benzothiazone. And that is a, a breakdown product of the red pigment, uh, pheomelanin. So if you take pheomelanin and you subject it to temperatures and pressures, it's going to break down to benzothiazole in high concentrations. And you don't see that particular chemical very commonly in other cells or in other structures in nature. So this allowed us to suggest that one of the is pheomelanin, and that would have given it a reddish-brown coloration. Now, of course, there's a lot of other aspects to the color of an animal. This is just a very a first-off approximation of what was at least part of the components of the color of the animal. Yeah. Cool. The really exciting thing is that now that we know that a lot of this organic uh, film that's preserved in the skin is a breakdown product of the pigment, we can then trace out where that occurs on the animal. And when we do that, we see that it's very thick and common on the back of the animal. But as you go towards the sides, it becomes less and less common and eventually disappears. Hmm. And the simplest way to interpret that is that that's reflecting of where the pigment was when the animal was alive. Mm -hmm. And that would have meant it had a darker back and a lighter underbelly. This isn't overly surprising because that's something very common today. It's called countershading, mm -hmm. and it's one of the most common forms of camouflage. And what it does is it's a process called self-shadow concealment. And this works by, if you imagine a, an animal with a three-dimensional form kind of standing in, a, in an open landscape, it's going to be lit from above by the sun. Mm -hmm. So its back is going to be well lit, but its belly is going to be in the shade. Countershading acts so that the pigment of the animal is exactly opposite that. So that it's dark on top, light underneath, and it helps to hide or disguise the outline of the animal. Hmm. And this is really important for camouflage and hiding from visual predators. Yeah, that makes sense. And this guy had to hide from predators even though he was huge or she. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, we don't know if it's a, it's a boy or a girl. Um, but yeah, that was one of the... Why did it need to hide? So this thing was about uh, five half meters long. It would have been about a ton and a half. And it would have been completely covered in thick, bony body armor. Some of these spines were about half a meter long. Yet it still had camouflage in the form of countershading. And what this shows is that the predation pressure back in the Cretaceous must have just been very high. We have these very large theropods things like Tyrannosaurus, but not, not Tyrannosaurus. It hadn't evolved at this time. Mm -hmm. And these are also probably very visually oriented predators. Uh, most of the large predators today on land are mammals. And mammals are much more scent oriented, much more about, about olfaction. Mm. Whereas if you look at birds and look at crocodilians, they generally have a very good sense of, of sight. So it, it, we use this to suggest that there was kind of this really extreme visual predation pressure uh, back in the Cretaceous. And even large, heavily armored dinosaurs were not safe uh, from some of these giant theropods. <laughs> so what, I know T-Rex wasn't evolved yet, but what age was the quarry where this came out of? I know it's kind of an unusual spot because it basically came out of like a coal mine, right? Or a coal quarry. Yeah. It came out of, it was actually a, uh, an oil sands mine uh, north of Fort McMurray. Um, so it's this petroleum producing sandy layer of rock. And um, the, the age of the rock dates to a period called the Albion, which is about 110, 112 million years old. So it's much older than most of the other dinosaurs that we have in Alberta. Mm -hmm. And it's older than, than Tyrannosaurus rex, which is what most people think of as the big predator. <laughs> so the, the big predator that would have been alive at the time would have been something like Acrocanthosaurus. And it would have looked uh, kind of superficially similar to Tyrannosaurus rex, but it would have not been very closely related to that animal. Gotcha. And it, did it still have, was it a Tyrannosauroid? Did it have those big bone crushy teeth or was it more like Allosaurid? Like It was more, yeah, it was more like Allosaurus or Carcharodontosaurus. Hmm. So much more lightly built. Um, and it would have had more shearing teeth as opposed to crushing teeth. Okay. That's amazing that something like that would be a threat to this guy. I would imagine you'd need a little more muscle behind your bite than the like slash approach. Yeah, it's our best guess as to what the main carnivore was. There were also uh, small but really nasty theropods like Deinonychus. Deinonychus comes from, it was found in deposits about the same age in the U.S. So... 
something like that probably existed up in northern Alberta at the same time as well. So it'd be less like a T-Rex triceratops fight and more like a pack of wolves on a bison or something. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so I know you weren't super involved with the way that it was preserved because it was already partially prepared by the time you saw it, but it basically floated out into water and then sank upside down and then got really quickly covered in something. What did it get covered in? Do you know? Yeah, so the, the animal was buried in a marine environment. It would have been a, a terrestrial or land-based animal. So at some point, it got washed out to sea, and it probably would have gone through a process called bloat and float, <laughs> which is where the animal starts to decompose, gases build up in the animal, and it floats nicely, and it can travel great distances. And at some point, it would have sunk to the bottom of this shallow seaway that would have kind of run through the middle of North America. And uh, it, it sank relatively quickly because it made some kind of an impact crater in the underlying muds at the bottom of that seaway. The matrix or the rock that it was buried in was it was a very fine sand to a silt, and it would have been buried uh, quite rapidly. And we know this for a couple of reasons. It wasn't scavenged by other animals, be it sharks or invertebrates or things like that. And um, we also have preserved basically a sediment collapse structure. So the animal was buried and, and covered in this sediment, but there would have been either gas or, or liquid escaping from the body, and the sediments would have collapsed on top of it. And that's actually preserved in the rock. So we know that it, it was still buried while it was off-gassing. Hmm. And then it would have got sealed up very quickly. Uh, it's preserved in what we call a concretion, which is this really hard rock that forms around some sort of nucleus. In this case, the nucleus is the dinosaur skeleton. And uh, that's what the excavator hit when they were digging up the overburden. Um, they noticed that the rock was distinctly harder. Hmm. And then when they, when they broke off that chunk, they could see bits of bone and bits of skin, and they knew it was something important. Hmm. So what's a, how does a concretion form? A concretion forms when you have a, a liquid with dissolved minerals in it. And there's basically a chemical reaction where those dissolved minerals precipitate out into uh, the existing rock and they act to cement that rock harder oh cool uh, it's something that this is definitely outside of my area i'm much more <laughs> on the biology side of things than than the uh, than the geology side of things but we tend to get these forming around organic seeds whether they be things from plants or things from animals <laughs> and when you find them you can often uh, guess that there's something good inside if you break it open <laughs> that's really cool yeah i've heard the term lots of times but this is the first time I was interested enough in the subject to really <laughs> want to know exactly what happened. So it's like it was the ankylosaur itself that kind of formed that concretion then. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's like it made another layer of armor. It had like a, a living <laughs> armor and then it died and it made a death armor around it too. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> cool. So once the animal was found and it was realized that this was an important specimen the the Tyrrell sent up a, a crew to excavate the specimen with the help of Suncor who were operating the mine and uh, that took about three weeks to collect the specimen and bring it back to the museum but that was really just the start uh, it was handed over to one of our technical staff a preparator his name is Mark Mitchell and he basically spent the next five and a half years working on very little else but that specimen and what he did was he carefully and and very slowly chipped away the rock down to the surface of the of the bone or down to the surface of the skin in this case and as he got closer and closer to the skin he'd use finer and finer tools till at the end he was basically removing individual sand grains almost oh, and uh in total he probably spent about seven thousand hours removing the rock getting the specimen ready for research and for and for display so when it came time to name this new species, we decided that Mark's contribution was, was too great to ignore, <laughs> uh, and we named it in his honor. I was going to say that's a well-deserved species name. <laughs> yeah. I, I think so. Um, the technicians are often kind of the unsung heroes of paleontology. They put in long hours, lots, and they're very skilled. And uh, we couldn't do most things in paleontology without them making those specimens available for research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. 
they are really unsung heroes because we, I can only think of one other recent paleontological find that was named after a preparator and it was someone at the field museum. But other than that, it's usually named after whoever finds it or whoever's land it's on or something like that. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of, of ways you can name an animal after somebody. Yeah. It can be the person who found it, which is very common. It can be after one of your research colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, someone who was a mentor growing up or a past collaborator. It can be over a landowner. Yeah. Or a donor to the museum. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, I think Mark's preparation job his his five and a half years on one specimen is probably one of the biggest single preparation jobs in in paleontological history so it really was was an apt name i think in my opinion yeah Yeah, that's great well yeah as we mentioned visitors can see boreal pelta at the royal Tyrrell museum it's great we recommend going (laughs) yeah definitely and are there any links or social media accounts or anything you want us to share with our audience follow you somewhere yeah there's uh there's two social media accounts that would be good to link the Tyrrell museum has a twitter account at royal Tyrrell, and i also have a twitter account which is brown underscore caleb underscore m i believe and then the museum also has a very good facebook page as well great well thank you so much for joining that was an awesome talk i love ankylosaurs they're my favorite type of animal so Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this mm-hmm. one. Not a problem. Thank you very much for your interest and for having me on here. Thanks, Caleb, for taking the time to chat with us. It was a really great conversation. Yeah. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Rabakisaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur4602 via YouTube. So thanks. The name means Rabak lizard. And it was a sauropod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Morocco in Africa in the Alphas Formation. It was named in 1954 by Lavacat, and several individuals were found. They found part of the backbone, scapula, humerus, sacrum. The type species is Rabakisaurus garaspe, and garaspa is the layer where Rabakisaurus was found. There's a second species of Rabakisaurus called Rabakisaurus tamasnensis. Rabakisaurus was about 46 to 66 feet or 14 to 20 meters long and weighed about 7 tons. It's part of the superfamily Diplodocoidea. It had a small head, long neck, and whip-like tail. It had spines on its backbone that could have supported a quote-unquote sail. Yeah, it's always interesting how different people interpret the spines on vertebrae on sauropods differently because it is weird and kind of hard to interpret. There's a South American sauropod, Rheososaurus, that looks really similar to Ribachisaurus, which scientists think could mean there was a land connection between Africa and South America during the early Cretaceous. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about connections in this episode. And it is really kind of crazy how long dinosaurs were around, (laughs) like we were mentioning. Mm -hmm. And just in the time that humans have been around like 200,000 years, we've gone through several different periods where there were land bridges connecting Asia to North America and things like that. So over millions and millions of years, it's really hard to figure out just how many times things were connected because they only need to be connected for a couple of years to make a big difference in, you know, which is just a blink of the eye in this paleontological record that you might not even get a chance to see other than evidence with all the dinosaurs very true and our fun fact of the day is that some dinosaurs ate grass and i say that because in the past i've pointed out that most dinosaurs didn't eat grass but a lot of times when people think about herbivorous animals the main thing you think of is eating grass because that's what cows and chickens and a lot of modern animals eat the way that this was discovered was that Researchers found a titanosaur coprolite, also known as fossilized poop, like we talked about earlier, and many plants contain a unique silica structure called a phytolith, and grass is one of those types of plant, and the reason that they have these phytoliths helps make them tougher and probably harder to chew, so it's kind of a defense mechanism. I had no idea grass had this in it. But it's really useful in a coprolite because it survives the digestive system. So if you find these specific silica structures in the poop, then you can identify what kind of plant it is, if it's a type of plant that has those. And that's what they found. So they discovered that this specific titanosaur was eating grass. Now, 
It was only a small part of the animal's diet based on the other stuff that was in the coprolite. And based on their teeth, it appears that small mammals called Gondwanatherians were actually probably the first animals to specialize on eating grass, which was around 70 million years ago. And that's, you know, dinosaurs went extinct 66 million years ago. So that doesn't leave a lot of overlap between when we knew that grass was around and when dinosaurs went extinct. So there still weren't really any dinosaurs that were just grazing on grass all day as their primary diet, as far as we know. And widespread grasslands weren't around for at least another 20 to 40 million years after non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. So, you know, you wouldn't have this big pasture land with dinosaurs and it. it would just be little bits of grass here and there. And before this was found, we thought the earliest grasses occurred about 55 million years ago. And this actually pushed back the earliest known grass, <laughs> finding it in the coprolite. And we don't have any evidence for grass before the latest Cretaceous still. So it still seems like dinosaurs didn't eat much grass. Although at the very end of the Cretaceous, might have been a little bit of grass eating going on. Take grass for granted. Don't think about how it, before it existed. Yeah. yeah. I think it makes drawing a lot more difficult. Ferns are harder to paint than grass, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you want to have easy access to all of our episodes and be notified when new episodes come out. We also offer a number of great dinosaur rewards <laughs> on our Patreon, so if you'd like to become a patron, please check out our page at patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.